0: Welcome to Stage Right. I am your host, John Thorne. This is episode 69, if you're keeping score at home. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're gonna love today's show. My guest today is not only a brilliant man, but he's one of the nicest, best people in Christian music. Now, there's lots of people who came to Nashville, gave their life, gave of their gifts and their talents to build Christian music that no one ever really knew. But today my guest is Charles Doris from Charles Dorris & Associates. I worked with Charles a lot. Uh, he booked a lot of the artists that I played for, or the bands that I toured with, and I road managed Whiteheart for the Tales of Wonder tour for a lot of that tour, and Charles represented Whiteheart. His story today is just fascinating. It's it's another one of those oh my gosh, this guy I would love to hang out with him and have dinner, and get to spend three hours asking him questions hearing what he has to say about stuff. So you're going to hear my conversation with Charles here in just a minute. But first, I want to do my email question of the week. It comes from Phil. It reads like this. I've noticed your picks of the week are mostly secular in nature. Is that on purpose or coincidental? Well, (laughs) it's kind of an ironic question considering my pick of the week this week, but let me explain it like this. Because record labels aren't doing good, and so many people are making music on their laptops or at their churches and stuff, there aren't very many great artists that just make great Christian albums. Most of it is in the worship category. Now, no one loves great worship music more than I do. The problem is most of it isn't great. And the fact that most of it is average at best makes it hard for me to actually listen to a lot. So to me, there's two kinds of music. There's good music and there's bad music. There used to be this joke in Nashville. I listen to both kinds of music, country and Western. Well, to me, there are two kinds of music. There's good music and there's bad music. So it doesn't really matter if it's Christian or not because the reality is the music is the music, the lyrics are the lyrics, and unless it's off the rails in the ditch somewhere, I'll listen to it. So having said all of that, A couple years ago, I walked into my family room and my wife, Julie, was sitting there listening to a song on YouTube, and I stopped and listened, and to her surprise, (laughs) I said, wow, I love that song, because she's played me stuff for years and tried to get me to listen to some of the modern worship that she enjoys, but most of it doesn't interest me, not because I don't love worship music. I love worship music tremendously, and God is the most important thing in my life. The problem is, it's hard for me to listen to average music. So I started listening to this artist as a result of walking in. His name is Joshua Aaron, and he's from Israel. Now, if you know anything about God and Scripture, you know that everything with God starts with his heart for Israel. Joshua was a Messianic Jew, and he's a fantastic writer and a great worship leader. While well, he recorded a live album at the Tower of David. So my pick of the week for this week is Joshua Aaron Live at the Tower of David. It's so good. Um, You can check it out on YouTube. I'm sure it's on Spotify. But if you can't find it, go to his website and just order a copy. It's so good. You'll really thank me later. So now I would like to bring on my guest of the week, part one of my conversation with the remarkable Charles Doris. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the best people you could ever meet, my dear friend, Mr. Charles Doris. Charles, how are you doing today?
1: Well, I'm good, John. How are you, brother?
0: (laughs) I'm doing so much better now. I am just so excited you wanted to do this.
1: Well, I'm excited to to be asked, and uh, with all the history we have together though we don't see each other much anymore uh you know we had a season in life where we saw each other a lot and both were yep. <laughs> involved in the in good thing good works together
0: absolutely absolutely so let's get right to it um i'm not sure how much time i don't want to impose on your afternoon i know you're a very busy guy
1: well i am I have a sign on my door that says do not disturb three o'clock to three forty-five. but I couldn't remember if we talked about a length of time. Uh, I mean, I've got more time than that. I've got the four calls I need to make before I leave at four thirty today. Okay. Um, I leave early on Wednesdays because I go to a dinner at my church that starts at five.
0: Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's great. I'm, I'm glad they still do that. There's so many churches that stop doing things like that.
1: I know. Yeah. We, and we have a, uh, you know, we're like a lot of churches, uh, you know, we, we do meet on Wednesday nights. We have about one-tenth the number of people we do on Sunday, but, uh, you know. Sure. That's still a couple hundred people.
0: Yeah, nothing to blink
1: at. Yeah, and, and so we have from 5 o'clock to 6, we have a dinner. And you sign up for it, uh, basically, so they know how much to prepare. But uh, it's a great thing in the middle of the week. Uh, yeah. You know, you sit at eight topper tables with people uh, you go to church with. And yep. Just catch up, you know. And uh, I never talk about the music business. You know, I'm an elder at this church, so uh, <laughs> uh, so a lot of a lot of people want to talk elder talk to <laughs> so, and I'm I'm good with that too.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Everybody's trying to get in with the elders so they can uh, be heard, have their voice heard.
1: Oh, I know, man. It's crazy. You know, uh, since I've become an elder, uh, you know, being in the music business has been good. Uh, Good um, prep for me being an elder because I'm accustomed to dealing with uh, unusual requests from people who think uh, this is how it should be, <laughs> right. and I say that with great respect, no disrespect. Sure, you know
0: that it's usually right.
1: in my job of protecting the artist yeah. that uh, I'm t- I'm telling some well-meaning pastor, no, they're not going to go out that afternoon to two nursing homes and sing songs for you (laughs) (laughs) You or or whatever it is, you know, kind of a, kind of a thing. But I tell people a lot of times they hire me as their agent or manager to say no for them. Uh, because, uh, you know, a lot of the requests we get, uh, are an automatic, no, but you need to be a little um, more respectful and take some time to tell them no as opposed to just saying, what, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you no, can't, you can't say that. <laughs> no, No, you can't. But it's funny
0: because in the 30-plus years that I have known you, you're one of the people that has given your life promoting other people, pushing them into the spotlight. And for the 30-plus years I've known you, I've never known anyone that didn't like you or had a bad word to say about you. So for after being in music all these years and then becoming an elder at your church, I think the only move you have left is to go into politics after this.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, with the climate out there for politics, I I don't think that's in in the cards, (laughs) even though I do my part behind the scenes there, too. You know, and uh, I can tell you about that, uh, uh, you know, as well. But uh, but thank you for saying that. I mean, that's that's kind of how I feel too. I, I mean, nothing brings me more joy than to be, uh, you know, in a room where great ministry and encouragement is taking place on stage. Right. And uh, people are being edified, lifted up. Mm-hmm. You know, some people may be coming to Christ for the first time, though. I don't think there's been as much of that in Christian music. It's more about, you know, we're singing and edifying each other and, and helping build the body up. Sure. Uh, but uh, I'm standing back there at the sound console or wherever and thinking to myself, not egotistically, but just thinking to myself, you know, if it weren't for me, this wouldn't be happening tonight. Right. I'm the one who signed the artist. I'm the one who pitched the buyer. I'm the one that, you know, arranged for the venue, uh, made sure of the promotion was kicking off at the right time. Yeah, uh, you know, interacting with the tour manager to make sure they had the information they needed to get to the gig in time to set up. And do, you know, so on and on and on. Uh, and again, I will say that egotistically, but, but I think you know, there's you now it might be happening that somebody else is doing it. If I wasn't the one doing it, uh, probably would be. But the fact is, I've stood at the back of many an auditorium and church with that thought in my mind and thought, man, I'm so glad that this is happening tonight right and uh, that's been that's been a great a great joy of mine obviously over, over the years and like uh, again not as from an ego perspective but more from a perspective as uh you know christ follower well and god used you greatly in that you as well i mean you're a musician you know whoever whether it's the the, the front of house guy the monitor guy the merch person you know Nobody was getting in Christian music to get rich. Right. We were getting in Christian music. Yes. Though some of us made money. Many of us have made a good living, you know, throughout our careers at it. But, uh, uh, but that's not, that was not the motivating factor for any of us. It was, it was, it was always about, uh, you know, what can we do with this music that honors God? Right. Okay. So I know a lot of your
0: story, but my listeners, a lot of them don't know your story go back to the very beginning. Where were you born and raised?
1: Okay, well, I was born and raised in Nashville, Yeah, and my dad was a uh, Church of Christ minister,
0: hmm.
1: and uh, we had uh, really no connections to the music business, but um, I played music uh, in high school, uh, junior high and high school, junior high we called it back then,
2: Yeah, and
1: uh, I was always the guy forming a band. I was always the guy that uh, I was a drummer.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, I was always the guy that owned the p a system. <laughs> that's you know, back in the day when back in the day when you made your lights, you know you go to the hardware store and buy a blue light, a red light, a yellow light, a green light. Right. Um, and uh, you'd build wooden boxes for it. I did all that. And uh, then, when I was in high school, I bought a van. Back then, they called them panel trucks. That's right. that's about the time they started calling them vans. But I uh, borrowed seven hundred and fifty bucks from my dad and paid him back. And so I had a I had a a method of transportation. I had a drum set, a sound system, and a lighting system. And I put together a series of bands all through high school and college. And uh, at some point in that mix, uh, I decided uh, as much as I love playing music, I just love music. And I kind of morphed into, I like being the guy who always puts this together. So when I would put a band together, I set the practices, and hmm. I got on to people if they weren't on oh. time and, uh, <laughs> when there were gigs. There were few and far between back when you are 15, <laughs> but you know, five, six, eight, ten times a year, And sure. I was always the guy that found the opportunity and booked the band, sure. and uh, I don't have it anymore, but uh, when I was in the eighth grade, our band played what was back in those days called a sock hop, yep. which just meant you couldn't have your shoes on in the gymnasium, you had to dance in your socks. (laughs) And uh, I remember that uh, the school paid us a hundred bucks.
2: Wow.
1: And I wrote up an agreement on a piece of notebook paper and had the principal sign it. (laughs) and uh I kept that for a long time, and I probably still have it somewhere, but I haven't seen it in a number of years now but uh i should I should have probably mounted that on my wall. It was my first contract that actually <laughs> issued
0: that's awesome. that's a lot of money back then
1: oh, it was it really was I and mean, we uh we thought we had hit the big time you know and uh, <laughs> for sure, I think we all ended up making about uh i can't remember sixteen dollars a piece <laughs> There were five us by the time we took our expenses off the top <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but when I got into college, what I realized was, uh, there were artists out there and bands that needed to be booked Yeah. and, uh, they would pay me, uh, you know, 10 or 15% to book them. Wow. And that's what sold me on, uh, getting into artist representation. I thought, well. I understand what it's like to be on stage, yeah. though it was a not a professional level like you've been on stages. Uh, but I'd been on stages. I'd, I had a sound. I had a sound system, and only own, And so I dealt with buyers, and and so um, really, I formed my first booking agency while I was in college. Hmm. And I booked our band, and I booked a uh, uh, a singer songwriter guy, be kind like a James Taylor type guy. Uh, you've never heard of him, but and he never made it big. I like to tell him I, I'm still in touch with that guy. I say it was because you had me as your agent. Oh. You never made it big. <laughs> if I knew then what I know now, I, he'd have been he'd have been a star.
0: Oh right. well, that's that's true for all of us, right? If we
1: knew then what we know now. So I'll kind of fast forward now <clears throat> to get in the professional side of it. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my family, even though I grew up in Nashville, we didn't really have any music industry connections. So I went to college at MTSU, yep. which had a music business program. It had just started. In fact, I was in the second year, uh, second graduating class. Uh, oh, wow. It started one year, and I, I was a freshman the next year. Uh, there was only one. Uh, there were only two others in the entire country at that time. One was Belmont. And the other was um, uh, UCLA. Wow. And it was more tied, it had a music business leg, but it was more tied into film and television. Uh, it was kind of an entertainment thing. So I wasn't interested in going there. And then at that back in those days, the Belmont program was really tied to the creative side. If you want to be an engineer, a producer, a songwriter, a publisher, then you went to Belmont. But if you wanted to be on the business side, you wanted to be a manager, an agent, a record company person. You went to MTSU. Now, both those programs, of course, are now 40 years old, and they both wonderfully cover the creative and the business side at each program.
2: Sure.
1: Uh, but at MTSU, my only extracurricular activity, aside from a little part-time job, uh, was that uh, I got on the concert committee as a freshman, wow. and by the time I was a sophomore. I was co-chair of the committee, and I stayed co-chair with, with another guy who eventually became my roommate, um, and we co-chaired that committee uh, in in our time at NTSU, uh, and we had lots of major artists come through because we had the biggest venue in the Nashville market. Back wow. then, there was no Bridgestone Arena. Yeah. Uh, there were 12, 000, almost 13,000 seats at NTSU's Murphy Center, And the biggest building in Nashville was a municipal auditorium at 9,600 seats. So all the big tours that automatically sold out would choose to come to MTSU because we could have 3,000 more times the gross ticket price. Uh, So we had uh, The Who, we had Electric Light Orchestra, we had Linda Ronstadt. um, Oh
0: my gosh.
1: We had so many great artists. We had Elvis, actually. He died in 77, and we had him on his 1976 tour. No way. And I remember that call coming into the office. The faculty guy dealt with it, but he called myself and the other Mm co-chair. And uh, it was basically, you might say, just a building rental because they promoted it themselves. But the fact is, our concert committee brought in Elvis, and we put that show on sale, and it sold out. Wow. And we added a second date, Hmm. And it sold out. So we had basically (laughs) 25,000 tickets sold for Elvis Presley in 1976. Crazy. So about two weeks after that, the manager called us and said, Hey, we got another date that would route to Nashville. And it was actually a week before Hmm. the other two shows. No way. So we actually got a third show on Elvis and it sold out. So we sold 36,000 tickets on Elvis Presley in 1976. Wow. And uh, I was co chair of the committee, and I did not get to meet Elvis, I'm sad to say. I'd love to have met him. Sure. Uh, but uh, they, there's a whole long story, but they it, basically, he arrived, limo pulled into the venue, parked next to the stage steps. He got out and walked up on stage. And then when the show was over, he walked down the steps and got in the limo and it reversed out the building Whoa. and they did not they kept playing the vamp the exit vamp sure um, until the car had cleared the campus and that's when they would radio back in to the board and the board would then signal the um, a band by saying ladies and gentlemen <laughs> Elvis has left the building literally and that was everybody in the crews um, uh, way of knowing that Elvis was had cleared the property and so, up to that time, the fans stayed seated because they thought he might come back and do an encore. Right. Anyway, that's the way side, sidebar kind of stuff. Um, but during that time, of course, I had a lot of wonderful opportunities to be involved in negotiations as a buyer of talent. Sure. Uh, in addition to still having my little agency where I was selling our band and my, and my uh, uh, you know, singer-songwriter guy. Yeah. Uh, and occasionally I, was, I did a deal with somebody else. Uh, But when I graduated from college, um, I was very, very fortunate. A friend that I had met during college days uh, called me and said, hey, there's a guy I went to web school with whose dad is in the music business, and they're looking for somebody who might like to be an assistant to the owner of another agency. And he's trying to help him find somebody and they're looking for, you know, somebody just out of college. Are you interested? And that was the, that was what I've been praying for. Wow. And so I went to work for what was in one of the three biggest uh, country talent agencies. It's called Dick Blake International. Hmm. And at, at Blake's, uh, he, he his big acts. I won't go long winded on this. He got a bunch of acts. But the biggest one was Barbara Mandrell, who at hmm. that moment in time had an ABC TV show which yeah. in the early 80s. Yep. And it was a top 20 show. Well, Barbara was selling out arenas coast to coast, and Dick Blake was her agent, and I was Dick Blake's assistant. Wow. And so it gave me a wonderful seat at the table. He also had the Statler brothers who consistently did arenas as well. There they they were a solid 7,000 to 10,000 seats anywhere in the South. They were a solid five to 7,000 just about anywhere else except the West Coast. They hardly ever went to the West Coast. Uh, And then our other big act was Ronnie Millsap. Oh, wow. Millsap was in the midst of having what ended up being, I think, 42 number one singles. And so I got to know all of these artists, but particularly well, I got to know Ronnie. Yeah. Um, And then uh, when uh, I'd been there a couple of years, uh, Dick Blake, the owner of the agency, sadly, came down with a lung disease uh, that took his life within about six or eight months. Oh, goodness. And uh, when it seemed apparent that Dick wasn't going to survive, um, I saw an opportunity. And uh, Ronnie and I had become, I don't want to say friends necessarily. I mean, we were friends, but uh, we weren't like running buddy friends. I was a guy had been booking him and was on the road with him a lot.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, he, uh, I went to him and his manager, and he was doing about five million a year in personal appearance income. So ten percent, five hundred K. And I said, why don't we form an agency, and you guys can pay me a whole lot less than five hundred K, and um, we'll we'll launch an agency, um, but only okay. if you would agree to let us sign other artists um, and I will make money on the other artists as well. So we figured out a deal. I won't go into all the details of the deal other than to tell you, uh, we formed a company called headline international talent. Wow. And uh, Ronnie was our first client, obviously. And uh, we set it up in Ronnie's building. I hired one other agent to assist me and hired an assistant. Uh, and the, the second artist that we signed was Another pretty big country act named Jerry Reed. <laughs> yeah. and Jerry Reed back in those days he was doing the Smokey and the Bandit movies and he was he was a three million dollar year act. Well, yeah, ten percent that's three hundred K. Sure. Well, that was enough to run the agency, pay all the overhead and have some profit, and Ronnie pays zero commissions. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, he had a net savings of half a million bucks on commissions, you know, at at that. But anyway, I kind of fast forward. It was during that season of time, and we ended up signing uh, uh, you know, Brenda Lee and Steve Warner, and we signed um, an unknown artist named Vince Gill, who at that <laughs> time was just leaving Pure Prairie League, which was a pop act, uh, and he'd just gotten his MCA country deal. We signed a lady who back then was known as Reba McIntyre. <laughs> And when I say back then, <laughs> right. what I'm referring to is now she's simply known as Reba. <laughs> right. A lot of young people today who love Reba don't even know what her last name is. You know, and when I was working with Reba as her agent, I remember she was in my office and her manager was with her, who was her first husband, and we were having a dreaming session. And I said, Okay, we're gonna come up with five things that if you could write the book on what's gonna happen in your career, what five things would you see as part of how you would see a hugely successful career and I kid you not, John, the number one thing on her list was, I would like for people to know me by my first name, just <laughs> like my heroes, Dolly and Cher, wow. nobody says Dolly who, and nobody <laughs> says Cher who, I would like to one day be known as Reba. Oh, that is awesome. I, that was the number one thing on her list. Right. And the number two thing, this was very uh, much why she succeeded. She said, the number two thing is, I would like to have a platform other than being a country star that will help my country career. And she says, on her list, she said, specifically, I would like to have a national television show. Oh. Well, hello. yeah. She's still got a show on the air. She's got a show on the air for 15 years now. <laughs> yep. She's known to millions of people. You know. Yeah, you pulled that out of her? It, it was me asking her to write those five things down. <laughs> it was in my office, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> I look back on it now and think, wow, God just had me in some amazing positions. Sure. But here's where I'm going to get into Christian music, because this is the very important segue. Hmm. It was about that time that I was really becoming even more aware of what was happening. Yeah in Christian music. Right. I remember that um, there was a guy named Joe English love Joe. who was uh, the drummer for uh, uh, for Wings, Paul McCartney's band. Yeah. And he got a deal on Benson and uh, he released an album. Yeah. Uh, yes, it was a vinyl album and I heard that thing and I just thought, man, this is this is phenomenal. Yeah. And that caused me to start really paying attention to what was going on because I thought this is this is music that my generation loves. Yes. And it's singing about Jesus. Yeah. You know, and uh, I began to feel at that point that, okay, God's had me in a really good position. I'd started my agency in college. Really, I booked my first show in the eighth grade. <laughs> <if> <laughs> All right. But, uh, yep. but, you know, now now I had had, you know, three years at a big agency with, with Blake. Yeah. Uh, and Now I was three years into uh, running an agency that, that, even though Ronnie owned it, I was president of it. Yeah. Um, and he owned 100 of it. I didn't own any of it. Sure. Uh, but you know, outside world didn't know that. They just knew that you know we had 11 employees and 20 something max, and I was the president of this company, and yeah. I was driving a Cadillac uh, <laughs> and and working on Music Row, Right. and I was 26 years old. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was really a uh, 27, I, I 27, 28, I guess by the time I was a headliner in Nashville. <laughs> right. were anyway, paying attention to Christian music. And uh, I remember going to see the Volunteer Jam, which is Charlie Daniels' thing. And um, uh, he had Gary Chapman and Amy Grant on as special guests that night. I had a bunch of guests, but uh, they just blew me away, especially. And Amy, obviously, speaks for herself. But Gary, he stepped up that microphone and brought the house down, hmm. you know, and he, and, he t- and he said things like, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know Jesus. You may be talking a weed right now, but you need to be toking Jesus or something like that. <laughs> so it was typical Gary stuff. Right. You know? And I thought, I need to be a part of this. So I went back in and met with Ronnie and uh, his manager, told him that I wanted to open a Christian division. And there's a whole long story, but the really short version is they said, absolutely not. Hmm. Uh, we'll lose focus. We got all this momentum going you can love all the Christian you want, but you need to stay focused. And I said, well, you know what? I'll bring people in, you know, we'll get a couple of agents. They'll work under me. And I'll just be in the big deal, part of the deal. But I think we really need to get into this. And the more I thought they kept, they kept saying, no, so the more I thought about it, John, I thought, you know, God has prepared me for this. Yeah. This is what I'm supposed to do. You know? And so once I started feeling that way, um, I went back into Ronnie and just and shared that with him. I said, you know, you've been such a blessing to me. You trusted me. You built this great thing. Uh, I probably said, you're saving half a mil a year. <laughs> put that in, you know, yeah. Uh, thanks to me, you know, and, uh, uh but, um, uh, I said, I, I don't know if you can understand this, Ronnie. Uh, he, Ronnie was a, was a believer in Jesus, but uh, I never was at that time sure of what his real walk was, but, uh, you know, he's very respectful of my uh, following Christ. Sure. And, uh, and Ronnie was a man of integrity and an honorable man, you know, and uh, so, so, uh, so uh, you know, all, all the good things you would expect that were, were true about him. Uh, but he, he he did not, I don't think, and noted his manager, I don't think either of them understood what I said when I said, I, you, you got to understand, I, I feel like God's calling me to do this. Hmm. And um, so I said, I give you the speed, speed up part, but um, I told them. Uh, that I was going to leave and start my own company. And I was going to represent country and Christian artists because I knew that when Jerry Reed had signed with the company, he had a key man clause in his contract that said, if I ever left the company, his contract was null and void. Oh, wow. So unbeknownst to Ronnie at that time, I had gone and talked to Jerry and said, I'm thinking about leaving and starting my own company. i going to have a country division and a Christian division. And he said, well, wherever you go, son, I'm in. Oh, wow. So I knew right there that I had $300,000 in income to walk out the door with because wow. he would make that in the next year. Yeah. And uh, I ended up representing Jerry uh, for six years after he left with me. And uh, uh, five and a half, actually, probably. And I guess really the de- the deals were going through year six because you're always booking you know, six to 12 months in advance. And uh, so I went back into Ronnie and uh, tendered my resignation and they could hardly believe it. They were like, Oh, wait a minute. We we had no idea you would really do it. (laughs) And uh, so they, they came back and uh, offered me 25% of the capital stock in the company. If I would stay and they offered me a cash uh, payment, it wasn't gigantic, but it would have been nice. Um, And, um, but then they said, but, but still no Christian music. Wow. And I said, well, then no deal. I said, I'll do that deal if we can do Christian music. Right. And uh, they they just, and they were not attitudinal about it. They weren't anti Christian. They just really were looking at, hey, Charles, you're a hotshot young country agent. Dude, if you start focusing on this Christian stuff, you're going to lose focus. We're signing hot acts and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, there's, you and I might have looked at it the same way. Yeah. You know, but uh, anyway, so um, I left. um, in the spring of 86, and uh, in March of 86, I hung out a shingle for Charles Darson Associates. Awesome. And I announced a roster of uh, Julie Reed yeah. and a brand new young artist that I had been courting it, but we hadn't signed her yet, and her name was Kathy Matea. Hmm. And so help me, this was a God thing, Kathy's very next single was a song called 18 Wheels and a Dozen Roses.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: And. It won the CMA Song of the Year, and she unseated Reba as Female Vocalist of the Year that year. Wow. <laughs> so, now, she never got as big as Reba. Sure. But, uh, but she she had a great run there early on. And uh, very quickly after that, I, I signed several other country artists. Uh, nobody Big Big, Yeah. Uh, but I did sign a guy named Mel McDaniel who had a big hit with a song called Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On. They had gone number one. And uh, he was a million dollar year act, a ten percent, hundred k, you know. So God was really providing a financial footing for me to then go out and pursue Christian artists. Right. And the among the very first ones I signed hmm. um, were was Whiteheart. No way. Uh, you know, Whiteheart had, had a long, great relationship with another agent, and uh, I just thought they could be bigger than they were, I thought they, yeah. you know, and, and in fairness to the other agent, you know, the 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 world of Christian music was exploding in right. that moment. So it wasn't like other agents weren't doing a good job. It was more, of, I really saw this as a wave to get on top of.
0: Right. It was like the church was catching up with music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I remember that um, right away I signed uh, Michael Card, because I knew Michael, because I'd been in the Bible study with him before he even had a record deal back. Because he went to college here in Nashville as well, he's a year or so older than me. Uh, but I, Michael was starting to have hits on the radio, uh, I signed Michael. Uh, I then signed Twila Paris, who <sighs> also was having lots of hits on the radio. Great worship writer, you know who yep. talking, you know, Paul. Yep.
2: Um,
1: then that led to me signing, in short order, Steve Camp and Wayne Watson. Camp was on Sparrow. Watson was on Word. And then those guys were, um, they were they were two guys and everything they released was going to number one Yeah. Uh, on Christian Radio. And so I had four artists kind of out of the box, John, Yeah. that were all over Christian Radio. Michael... <laughs> Uh, you know, certainly Twyla and then uh, Wayne and Steve. And then I signed at about that time, Whiteheart. <laughs> um, and and I just felt like, okay, God is confirming that this was the right move. Right. And um, that led to other signings, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the the Whiteheart the, was my uh, first and major, most major and most long tenured. Uh, rock artists to represent. I'd also signed DeGarmo and Key, uh, and I signed Mylon and Broken Heart about three years in, wow. uh, the, the, the DeGarmo and Key thing was about an 18 month deal. We did a one year deal and, um, and there was no, nothing bad happened. In fact, it was all good. Uh, but they decided to take their booking back in house and save the commission. Right. Because uh, that's what they had been doing.
0: Yeah. For those that don't know, DeGarmo and Key was never really based out of Nashville.
1: No, they were not. They were definitely Memphis based at the time. And, and Dan Brock was managing, and he was out in Tulsa, or Oak City, I guess it was. I think. Uh, but he moved to Nashville right about the time we did our deal. I flew out to well, meet with him to try to seal the deal. And uh, then shortly after that, he not only moved to Nashville, but he he rented an office across the street from Neil. He's a grow. Oh, that's
2: funny.
1: So, so we we became buddies, you know, and uh, and are to this day. And we're not running buddies, but uh, his assistant was Laurie Anderson. Oh wow! And Laurie was the day to day person I talked to, and of course, Laurie uh, to this day continues as the co-manager of Toby. Yeah. Uh, Laurie and I, uh, you know, basically grew up together in the business because after we met, um, you know, she was Dan Brock's assistant. Uh, and She was the one that was booking the band, so it was a great load off of her when I took over the booking, but she became the person in the management office who I talked to on a daily basis about deals coming in, status of deals, and own sales, and uh, advancing the shows, and if she found something to be addressed, address, she would call me and say, hey, that guy needs, needs to call him and tell him whatever. Uh, you know, those types of things. So we really kind of went through the fire together as an agent and a road manager typically do, Right. you know, because we're trying to make the day of show easy for the artist and for the crew. Yep. And so we're trying to remove as many obstacles as we can, knowing that you're going to find obstacles still, no matter what we do. <laughs> <laughs> so Always. To re- remove it. It's still true to this day, even though there's a lot more professionalism in it than there was back then in terms of people that do it for a living when I say professionalism. Um, but uh, Laurie and I uh, are still great friends to this day. Uh, she manages Toby Mack. She's managed, uh, uh, she managed him since he left DC Talk. Right. And uh, co-manages with Dan Pitts. Yeah. Now, and, and sidebar on Dan, uh, Dan was somebody that I sold a DeGarmo and Key Date to at his college. He went to college in Massachusetts. <laughs> And I remember getting a call from him saying he wanted to bring in the and Key, and me thinking, oh, "You're in the Northeast. What? How do you even know about Christian music?" <laughs> right. Kind of, a <laughs> and he was a senior at that time, and or a junior at that time though, and uh, he brought them in, had a great show, and. DC Talk was opening. For no that. way. And <laughs> nobody knew who DC Talk basically was at this point. Wow. But I got a call from Ben Pitts after the show, or maybe I called him to see how it went. I can't remember. You we know, talked after the show, a uh, day or two after the show. And uh, he told me he wanted to do an internship. And did I have, in Nashville, in Christian Music, did I have an internship available? And I said, no, but just coincidentally, Laurie Anderson, who works with DC Talk's, with the Garmo key told me they're looking for an intern. So he ends up coming to Nashville and doing an internship with Dan Brock's company. And he works with Laurie Anderson and then, and he's a golfer and Toby's a golfer. I don't know how everything meshed out, but fast forward, he graduated. He came to work full time in Nashville and was on the road with DC talk. And then when Toby, when the DC talk ended and Toby went out on his own, Dan and Laurie, uh, went with them and they launched uh, an artist management company together. Wow. So anyway, that's ancient history is really uh, maybe it's off, off topic at one level, but it's just a reminder of how much the industry is interconnected. Yes, uh, and, and it's true in every industry, but it's especially true in the music world. Yep. Uh, but uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and fast forward a little more here. It was becoming such that I felt like um, I need to really stay heavily focused on Christian music. And I was able to find a company that was interested in buying my country division. Um, And so that was a blessing. I sold the country division. I got a check. uh, I continued to get a check every month for 24 months based on income. Uh, So even though I wasn't in the country business anymore, uh, I still was uh, making some money during, during that season of uh, just having sold it. Um, And that allowed me to focus more heavily. And I started signing more Christian artists and I signed you know artists that people hadn't heard of a lot of times, and uh, uh, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. Um, I was uh, I went to church with um, a guy that um, led singing at our church, and um, his name is Michael Perrier And Perrier's day job was he worked um, for a music publishing company, um, and he called me one day and said, "Hey, we signed this this songwriter kid." Uh, and we think, we think he's going to do he has a, has a good shot at an artist deal. And we're talking to Sparrow records hmm. and anyway, it, it ends up being Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> and he said, we'd love for you to get involved with us if you're interested. And, uh, uh, and so Sparrow did the deal and it was funded in part by Lorenz Publishing. Wow. I don't know all the intricacies of the deal. I was not in the, uh, I didn't make that record deal. I've made a few record deals actually by now. Uh, but uh, uh, it's safe to say if Lorenz hadn't put up some cash, Stephen probably wouldn't have gotten signed at that time.
2: Right.
1: Uh, and I think Stephen was destined to happen anyway. Uh, but I remember, and you'll know this too, uh, there was a group that had been very popular back in the 70s. Uh, whose name was Dogwood. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with a recent hard rock band called Dogwood. There was a kind of a folk Peter Paul and Mary Christian version called Dogwood. Okay, and Two of the, those three people were a husband-wife team named Steve and Annie Chapman. Yep. So when Stephen was being signed the Sparrow, the question arose, will radio programmers and media confuse Steve Chapman who was what Stephen's name was at the time? Right. Yep. <laughs> With the Steve Chapman of Stephen Annie Chapman fame, and everybody thought, yes, there will be confusion. So hence the name Stephen Curtis Chapman. His given first name of Stephen and his middle name of Curtis. Right. Uh, had it not been for Stephen Annie Chapman, mm-hmm. we wouldn't have a Stephen Curtis Chapman. <laughs> He'd be Steve Chapman. You know. So you know, that's kind of sidebar
0: story. Well, speaking of a sidebar, can I tell you a quick story about Stephen Curtis? Yeah, please do. All right. So you know Kip, uh Val Summers, our good friend Val, Val Summers' husband. Of course. Yeah, there you go. So Kip and I were on the road together back when Stephen was kind of blowing up and we played together in Margaret's band. We played for Twyla. We played for Wayne Watson. We played for Idle Cure. Uh, I remember. Yeah. Not only was Steven's music great, and he was winning all those all those Dove awards every year, but he was one of the nicest people on the planet. So Kip and I used to always look at each other and say, you know, dude, if we ever win a Dove Award, we'll just go up to receive it, but we'll call Stephen up on stage and say, we really want to give this to you because you deserve this more than we do.
1: Oh, yeah, that's great. Well, I ended up, um, you know, signing Stephen, and uh, and you'll remember this uh, probably when I tell you, but, uh, you know, the label uh, was really keen for me to get him on a hot tour. yeah, And so I put him on... A White heart tour. Yep. He, had a, he had a book on the bus, and <laughs> he got, I don't remember, 250 bucks a show. Or something. <laughs> wow. It wasn't much. But he was in front of audiences everywhere, and his first album was out, and the first single or two had been released, and his music was great, and people loved him, and he was new, and he was fresh, and he was humble, and he mm-hmm. he was cute and all those things, a great musician and just friendly and great to be around backstage on the bus, on the stage, wherever, you know, what you saw is what you got with him.
0: Right. Terrific guy.
1: Wonderful guy. Uh, then and now. Yeah. And, um, and, and God just opened the doors and abundantly blessed him. And, uh, but, but I remember that the tour, and I remember how excited he and Mayor Beth were that Stephen was going to go out on his first quote, real tour, close quote. And I remember thinking, well, hey, this ought to work because Whiteheart is a rock band, but they're not uh, hard rock. Yep. And they're not punk rock. They're just pop rock, yep. you know. And uh, and and it was a good good measure. I, I would venture to say that most everybody that came to see Whiteheart because that was that was the, one of the tours where Whiteheart was doing. You know, fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred people at every show. Yeah. So if we did whatever it was, I don't remember the number of cities, but let's just say it was 40 cities, and let's just say we averaged 2,000 a show, well, that'd be 80,000 people that would see Stephen for the first time. And I'll bet you, uh, 70% of them became instant Stephen Curtis Chapman fans. Yes. Um, you know because he was connecting so well. Uh, anyway, that's kind of ancient history, but um, had a great, uh, great run with Stephen. And then as we got into the 90s, uh, you know, Christian music started. Um, really coming into its own. you know, it had it had really been a uh, all ministry driven, and then it kind of turned into a cottage industry, meaning there were some professional people and there were some people that were doing it all by themselves. Mm. Uh, but it started turning into a real bona fide industry right. uh, with 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 radio station networks. and you know when when Clinton became president, you know one of the things he did in his second term, this may be a little, bit, a little bit later, but it ties in actually to what has happened with Christian Radio, he uh, undid an FCC rule that up to that point had forbade a single entity for uh, from owning more than 15 radio stations or 15 TV stations in local markets. Hmm. That's completely gone now. And that, that cleared the way in the pop business especially for there to be uh, – iHeart Radio and Clear Channel and uh, all those big companies that now have 1,200 stations each. Right. Uh, but it actually did the same thing in the Christian space because prior to that, virtually every Christian station was independently owned. Yeah. I'll go back again to what I said earlier, and it's true for Christian radio. Nobody was getting in Christian radio to get rich. Right. People were getting in Christian radio because the music was powerful. It was encouraging. It was motivational. The airways were an opportunity to just sing about Christ. And so a number of enterprising folk started uh, trying to build Christian networks, and that's where Way FM came from, and that's where Caleb came from, yep. and that's where his radio network came from, and that's where Salem's Fish Signal came from, and on and on, because suddenly they were no longer encumbered by a maximum ownership of 15 stations. Um, but that's a sidebar story. But the reason I tell you that is, is to say, so by the time we get into the 90s, mid-90s, late-90s, uh, we've got a pretty uh, tried-and-true formula
2: mm-hmm.
1: of signing artists, marketing artists, releasing artists to the public, touring, uh, radio, airplay uh, patterns, uh re- uh, record distribution patterns working with all the big store chains because back then everything was still selling a piece. you are selling a piece of plastic yeah you know a cd or, or a set in the later on cd um and so you know that's when along came this this whole group of of other artists that um you know that ran the gamut from uh uh, BB and C Z Winans to uh, uh, you know, jars of clay, newsboys. Newsboys were kind of sort of already happening, but uh, you know they they start blowing up. You yeah. know, uh, Jackie Velasquez, uh, uh, For Him, uh, Point of Grace, uh, Avalon, yeah. um, and and on and on. Uh, it was like a, a every time there was a an artist signed at one of the major labels, there were was myself and John Huey, who was another wonderfully talented agent. And, uh, in Christian music and, and outside of Christian music. Too. And so you had John and myself, and then uh, you had uh, later on uh, Jeff Roberts. Yep. Now, sidebar, Jeff Roberts has got probably the biggest agency in Christian music now. He's done so well. He's such a great guy, an honorable man. But, you know, the three of us would show up at every label signing <laughs> uh, showcase. Right. <laughs> and one of <laughs> us would walk out of there with the artist. Yeah. You know, so. We had very little competition, but the three of us were all tracking on the same page. We were trying to blow up Christian music. We are trying to get more and more people in these audiences, sure. Where they would not so that they would see Whiteheart, that too, yeah. But so that they could hear the power in the music that Whiteheart was delivering, and that Margaret Becker was delivering, who Jeff had, yeah. Uh, and on and on, or that you know who, you know Michael W. Smith was delivering. That was John Huey's act, you know. We We all wanted everybody to succeed. It never felt like competition to me. I think John and Jeff would probably say the same thing. Uh, Yeah, it was competition. Yeah, you lost an act from time to time, left you and went to another agency. Uh, But really, at the end of the day, we all basically could do the same thing for the artists. Nobody had some gigantic magic wand that set them apart. Right. Uh, uh, it, it, It really was about, you know, uh, us all trying to do what we could do is, uh, with that, with artists. Uh, but uh, it gave it gave me a great seat at the table, John, as you as you all know, um, because uh, I'm uh, I was I was put in a place that God put me in um, as somebody that you know the labels knew they had to get their artist out there. Just releasing a single to radio uh, would sell some CDs, but the real way to sell CDs was to tour. Because mm-hmm. when we did a fifty city tour on for him, let's use them as an example. Right. Uh, what would come with that was a coordinated effort with the label that we would set the tour to coincide with the release of the new album. The album would typically hit the streets, you know, two weeks maybe before the tour launched. The first single would come out maybe six weeks before the tour launched. We'd be hitting on all cylinders with media, which back then. Primarily consisted of CCO magazine. Yes, (laughs) Uh, but we were doing a lot of direct mail. We we started gathering names and addresses of people in these markets that were coming to our shows. So by now, between all the tours, there were you know millions of names of people that had come to see Christian artists. Uh, So that was allowing us to be able to identify the people that loved Christian music, Mm. and then there was. All this embracing from uh, from churches because the credibility with churches was very strong. Still, for the most part, is yeah. Uh, that's a whole different discussion to have about what's <laughs> happening with churches and how they do or don't do you know, things musically anymore right. uh, with outside guests. Um, but all these festivals started popping up. Uh, yeah. uh, city events that would previously not have had a day of Christian music programming started having that. Fairs that would run for seven days or 14 days and they would buy talent every day of the fair. Suddenly we were having fairs come to us and say, Hey, we're doing 14 days next year. And we want two of those days to be Christian music. What do you want to pitch us? Wow. You know, and, and they all had budgets and uh, theme parks were, were right on the heels of the fairs. Then all the theme parks, we had a season where you may remember, six flags had a national talent buyer a guy named Mark Perthel, who sadly passed away about 2 months ago Aww. um Mark is, and he was relatively young. I think he was only 62. Wow. Now I call that relatively young. Yeah. Whereas when I first was doing this, I just said, man, that dude was old. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> he was old. Old. he wasn't old enough. Yeah. But uh, he was buying for all the Six Flags parks and he was doing a Christian Music Day at every park. And then that morphed into a Christian Music Weekend. Of yeah. course, Disney was doing their Night of Joy, the Universal Parks, uh, yep. Carowinds, and all those kind of places. Mm-hmm. They were all doing a Christian Music Day. And So we had all these opportunities springing up. Colleges were now Christian colleges, particularly. uh, Mostly Christian. We had very few secular colleges buying Christian. Occasionally we did, but for the most part, you know, every Christian college, all 160 of them, or whatever the number is nowadays, everybody brought in. One or two or three or four Christian concerts a year. Yeah. You know, so we had all these opportunities just blowing up out there. That's why Whiteheart worked 110 shows most years. That's why mm-hmm. Stephen Curtis worked 120 shows most years. That's why, yeah. fill in the blank, you know, everybody was working a lot because we could do our regular tours. Yeah. And we had all these, uh, Uh, other opportunities to play as part of events, various festivals and theme parks. Uh, Also the thing that started happening in that time period, and you'll remember this as well, is we started seeing all these things pop up called conferences. (laughs) You know, this or that denomination or this or that guy that was a speaker would do something in Gatlinburg or they'd do something down in Orlando at some big hotel and youth groups would come from all over the region to it. And they'd do three nights or whatever you know, with well that, that too, in short order, there's a hundred opportunities a year there for Christian artists. Yeah. Um, and so it really was, I call it kind of sort of the golden age of Christian music, because it seemed really literally like the sky was the limit.
0: My thanks to you for listening today. My special thanks to the one and only Charles Doris for being my guest. Next Saturday after Thanksgiving, part two of my conversation with Charles. Have a great Thanksgiving week. I'll see you next weekend.